Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast, in which we discuss all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in Hammersmith with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us for this episode are two legends of music journalism, Edwin Pouncey. Oh, hello, Barney. And Sandy Robertson. Hi. Both wrote for Sounds magazine, and both have gone on to great things. Edwin, particularly in his guise as comics artist Savage Pencil. Sandy is the author of several fine tomes, one of my favourites bearing the title Meatloaf, Jim Steinman and the Phenomenology of Excess. Which I think must be one of the great titles for a music book. Jim Steinman loved it. <laughs> yes, he would have done. But did he have to go and look up what phenomenology meant? No, I think he knew. You think he knew? Okay, cool. Guys, you've known each other for several decades and you also share a deep interest in Rock's relationship with the occult. So we'd like to go over the dark side with you, at least for an hour. But shall we start with how you both came to write for Sounds in the first place? Sandy, what's your story? Yeah, I had a very glamorous older cousin called Linda Gamble, who is now a big-time publicist for films. But she started. She quit her law degree and then went to work at the early days of, at the early days of Virgin Records. And okay. she told me there was this thing called the Music Press. <laughs> and from then on, I wanted to be a rock journalist. You know, I met another weirdo who lived in the same town, Alex Ferguson, and we formed a bedroom band called the Nobodies. And I sent an electronic tape I did to Eno, which he wisely rejected. And I realised I wasn't going to be a musician. So we moved to London together and he ended up in Mark Perry's band, ATV, and then writing songs. He was in um, Psychic TV with Genesis P. Orange and he produced Orange Juice and things like that. And I did my little white stuff, a little Patti Smith fanzine. And Vivian Goldman, it sounds, bought a copy of it and actually phoned me up and said... You can actually write. <laughs> and she gave me a couple of little things to see if I would screw them up or do what she wanted, and she was happy with them. And a couple of weeks later, she said, do you want to do Mick Jagger? And just went from there. Was it interview Mick Jagger? Yeah. Literally a couple of weeks later, yeah. you wanted to interview Mick Jagger? Yeah. <laughs> I was about thrown in the deep end. Yeah, it didn't yeah. make me popular with the rest of the staff because they all wanted that job. Sure, sure, of course. <laughs> Edwin, was Sandy already at Sounds when you began? Oh, yes, he was, yes. Yes, because yes. 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 it was sort of 1977, broadly, that you yeah, came, early both came into the paper. Yes. Yeah, because previously I was just doing the comic strip, you know, at home and stuff like that. Well, I'd finished my degree at the Royal College of Art. I'd come back from America, and I was still doing the comic strip, the reason well, through through the reason I got the comic strip gig as well was again through our friend Vivian Goldman, who you know I met in uh, Rough Trade, and we both shared a kind of interest in reggae and dub and stuff. And she sort of put me on the road to what was worth listening to and what wasn't. She said to me, uh, you know, one day, "Oh, Sounds needs a cartoonist. Can you come in and show the editor Alan Lewis some of your work?" I said, "Okay." So I sort of went home and drew all night on the all in my sketchbook all these ideas for a possible cartoon strip. And I went in there and Alan Lewis looked at it and just started ripping the pages out of the sketchbook. 
and uh, gluing them onto a sheet and then stuck them in the, you know, that, that was it. He sort of just <laughs> made up the page. I went, uh, okay, and he said, can you, do, can you do some more next week? And I said, yeah, sure. So that was it, really, and I was on the way. So I was sort of doing the cartoon strip for a while, and then when I'd come back from America, I needed a job, and a job of sort of layout artist came up at Sounds. So I sort of applied and amazingly got it. And it wasn't just being a layout artist I found. You had to actually write for the magazine. You had to do a, a, a number of things, you know, sub-edit, all sorts of things you had to do. So it was like a job within a job within a job. So you kind of really learn on your feet, really, you know. A bit like sounds... Sandy did, but he'd been shoved right. in front of Mick Jagger. That's that because I don't remember that at, at, at NME, for example. <clears throat> I mean, the, the, you weren't expected to do that no. range of, of, of tasks. No. Oh, we were. You were. Yeah. I, I could sub-edit. You sub-edited as well. Yeah, though. but I couldn't do layouts, really. No. You know. But I, I knew back in the day when they had printers and marks, I mean, I knew how to do all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You had to learn, you know, how to, uh, yeah, really correct the copy using the marks, you know what I mean, that the printers could understand so that they could make the fonts right and everything like that. Mm. Briefly, when you were at Sounds, how did you feel about, you know, the main rivals to Sounds, Enemy and Melody Maker? What did, what, what did you feel Sounds' identity was um, re- relative to those two other weeklies? Well, I love Nick Kent and Max Bell, especially, but Sounds, I've heard that enemy writers say this, that they envied the freedom that we had at Sounds. You could go to Alan Lewis and say, I want to do Throbbing Gristle, which nobody cared about. And he'd say, oh, all right, you know. <laughs> yes. Whereas they said they were more constricted. Yes. Know? But Enemy is a great magazine. I, mean, I wouldn't. I thought all the, the infighting and sniping that went on in columns was ridiculous. We all did it, but... I used to say, look, can we not stop this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, would, would you broadly agree with that, Edwin? That you, cause you oh, yeah, because you were able to write about quite a lot of different things. You weren't pigeonholed into no, one category. No, you, you weren't sort of entrapped by the music industry as much as the other magazines seemed to be. You know, you were sort of, like Sandy said, Anna Luce was a fantastic editor yeah. because he would just... It'd see inside you, you know, it'd see something inside you, you know what I mean, what you want, really wanted to do. And he'd just say, go for it. It'd go with the flow, if you know what I mean. And, yes. and, and, and it always used to sort of work because you, and you respected him a lot because he'd given you that chance, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it produced good work and mm. interesting work. Yeah, you know? yeah. John Savage started his career, you know, sort of career at mm. Sounds, you know, and he was writing about... Well, he wrote that very interesting story. He, 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 I think he introduced us to the residents, you know what I mean, things like that. Oh, and definitely. I mean, and, J- and Jane Sock, of yeah. course, Jane was, was yeah, sort yeah. of sounds as Julie Birch. Or... One thing is, is that kind of historically, Sounds is remembered just for one tiny element, well, two tiny elements of what happened. And it's not that magazine at all. It's not a heavy metal magazine, even a new wave of heavy metal Jeff Barton. Was, was important in that respect. And it wasn't an oil magazine, Gary Bushel, but that tends to be the way people perceive it historically, which is garbage. My only objection sounds it's so badly printed. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's really hard to scan pieces sometimes in OCR because it's just a smear. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. My scrapbooks fell apart. I just chucked them. They were just yeah. crumbling. <laughs> <laughs> crumbling tomes. Yeah. yeah. 
can we talk just a little bit about your interest in the occult? Because it's such a fascinating strand of kind of rock history. And I don't know where it began individually. I think you said it was it began in childhood for you. And I don't know if that's applies to you as well edwin was were you interested in or aware of things like uh, you know people like alistair crowley when you were young when i was a child no i was probably i was probably um i suppose my mind came through reading just like horror stories and uh famous monsters of Filmland magazine at my dad's shop you know what i mean and things like that and mine came through a, a, a more of a sort of you know a more sort of commercial kind of way than than a, than a deep you know, a cult kind of knowledge well, me too, type way. Yeah. But I guess that's, you know, didn't, didn't we both do that? You know, we, yeah. we saw a magazine that said Castle of Frankenstein on it and we just grabbed it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, a horror comic, you know, yeah, let's have that instead of Superman, you know, that bore. <laughs> um, let's, let's, you know, yes. let's let's do that. So so yes. you, you were sort of introduced to it in a different sort of way, really. Yes. How do you think that... What do you think marks the transition from horror comics to occult religion kind of, you know, that, um, that different... There is a difference there, right? Could I just say curiosity, you know? Just like you want to kind of learn more. Mm-hmm. You want kind of, it's like you listen to a, a band or something like that and, and you think, well, what's at the roots of what they're doing? Mm-hmm. And so you search them out and you find it, yeah. you know, and you, and then that opens doors, you know, every doors start opening. Sure. So I guess it's the same with that, really. Yeah. You know? mm. I found a paperback. They'd reissued it with a title, Alistair Crowley, the Black Magician. And it was by filmmaker Donald Camel's father, mm. who was a friend of Crowley. And it was a sympathetic biography. You know, it didn't completely damn him, you know. And I thought, this is really interesting. My dad was going, oh, my God, no. The <laughs> wickedest put, put man. that down. I mean, <laughs> the evilest man in the world. We, we all sort of grew up with a slight, almost like the Dennis Weekly books Precisely. I was just about to say that, actually, yeah. And and he had a he had a library of the occult. Right. Which came out in Arrow paperbacks. Do you remember this, Sandy? Yeah, I've got Arrow of the Ken- got Yeah, you've got them all. Forty-five volumes. Forty-five away. volumes. <laughs> Excellent. Right. You know. Yeah. Quite um, hard to find. But but yeah. those those were kind of like um, a way of you know you could buy those at the station. Yeah. You know what I mean? You could yeah, just yeah, like yeah. Pick those up like either classic occult novels yes. or things about the supernatural and next, stuff. Next to... Um, ne- but next to sort of like the Malleus Maleficarum, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But also like, next to Trouble for Skinhead and like the other sort of paperbacks mm, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Sandy, you, you, one of the pieces we're going to feature on the homepage is the 1982 piece that you wrote about Crowley. I think it's just called Mr Crowley. I don't know whether Ozzy's song was already out at that point, Mr. Crowley. It must have been. I think I it was. I, yeah. think I, I didn't the pick, the, pick the title, so it was just put by the... Well, it's a very, it's a very yeah. interesting guide to why Crowley has meant so much to people like Jimmy Page. So, so let's just talk about kind of Jimmy, for example, and Jimmy's relationship historically with Crowley and reading Crowley, but also, you know, Kenneth Anger, who was also a sort of disciple of, of, of Alistair Crowley. So, what I mean, can you, both of you, sort of explain the appeal? Why would someone like Jimmy Page become so fascinated by this sort of dark side? 
I think people like Jimmy Page were the first people since the first modern people who had the financial wherewithal to actually live the way Crowley did when he was a young man with a big inheritance. They could actually buy his old house Mm. or or they could go to Sicily and and look at the ruins of his abbey and so forth. And but why would they interest? It's the it's the idea of freedom. I mean, do what they will. People always think it just means do anything you like. It doesn't matter. But Crowley always said what it means is if you fulfil the the will, your true will that God wants you to do, by its very nature, if it's what God wants you to do, it won't interfere with anyone else's will. Now I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. Yes. Yeah. But I guess Jimmy Page's will probably did interfere. With oh yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think so. Um, but there was—I mean, part of the allure of Zeppelin was there was a kind of darkness that I don't know if you're a Zeppelin fan, possibly not. But I have what all would you the say about? Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, do you think that that's? I mean, when I was a kid and I was sort of still basically listening to T Rex, and I sort of discovered Led Zeppelin because a schoolmate. I had a big brother and he brought all the Zeppelin albums in. And I think I, what I was responding to was, was a kind of something quite sinister and dark and menacing mm. and, and obviously very powerful. And I think it's still... I mean, you listen to something like In the Light and it's quite hard not to sort of feel like shivers on your skin. I mean, do you, do you respond, Edwin, in that way to the sort of dark side of Zeppelin? I find the music still to this day quite exciting really. You know, I kind of I kind of get that friction of excitement through listening to something like well, one track particularly the Ocean of Houses of the Holy, you know, that's incredible that track. Fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. know so i do get that i you know get that and i think what sandy's just said you know about him being able to afford all this luxury and everything and and live the way that crowley would have lived is a really interesting idea for a for a, for a rock star to do in a way do you know what i mean yeah and the the, the awareness that one had that he had bought crowley's Boleskin, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I think. I mean, to, to buy Boleskin House. I mean, it's, yeah, like, it was quite a it's like a collector's dream, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, I've got all the books, I've got all the, you know, what can I get now? Um, his house. Isn't it burnt out? I'll just ring it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. It, a couple of times, I believe, I, nobody's proved it, but I think it's just either locals that, that don't like the rep or, or sort of deluded Christians who just want to destroy it. You know, it's somebody's mm. house, man. You know, mm. I think that's terrible. Somebody lives there. Yes, yes. But there's that story about Kenneth Anger and Jimmy Page sort of having a kind of an almost magical battle at an auction room when <laughs> all, those, all those insanely rare Crowley books turned up, wasn't it? And they were sort of like... Bid what thou wilt bidding, shall bid be the thou, whole of the Lord. Bid what thou wilt shall be uh, the end of my bank balance. <laughs> but it was almost like a sort of... Um, I've put a curse on Jimmy Page. A sorcerer's, sorcerer's kind of battle, wasn't it, in a way? What's mm. that film with uh, Boris Karloff in it, with Roger Corman did? 
Oh, the Raven. The Raven, oh, I yeah. watched that the other yeah. night, yeah. It's great. <laughs> uh, talking of films, of course, you know, Angus films are, oh, extraordinary. Invocation of My Demon Brother. I don't know what the status of that film is, or, uh, uh, or more particularly Lucifer Rising, of course, I mean, mm-hmm. which featured Marianne Faithful and others. They look oh, really crude these days. Yeah, but that, I think it's part of their, their kind charm. of appeal. When you see something <laughs> like Scorpio Rising, it is like a a kind of home movie. Yeah. But that's part of its... I don't know. Might have something to do with the budget. But. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it's zero <laughs> budget. Hollywood, yeah. funnily enough, was not Nil giving budget. Kenneth Anger and of course, money. And that's the link to Manson, because Beausoleil, L.B. Beausoleil, was, was still in jail, I believe. Yeah. Still, uh, yeah. still in jail. Yeah. And you mentioned in your occult primer, this fantastic piece you wrote for The Wire in 2016, you, you describe how anger went back to Bobby Beausoleil, who was the original guy he wanted to soundtrack, Lucifer Rising, and he went back to Beausoleil in prison and asked him to, you know, to to start work on that again, and Beausoleil put together, you know, a kind of prison orchestra, didn't he? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about Beausoleil and Angus... Relation and just all of that and Manson, it's it's quite a, obviously macabre area of popular culture. Well, didn't Beausoleil steal the tapes and bury them in the desert? Or yeah, something I think like he denies that. that, but that's what anger seems to have yes. thought happened. Yeah, yes, and then I think Page was asked to rewrite the soundtrack and everything. That didn't work out, and so he went back to Beausoleil and he did. Did put start, together a sort of magical put, put together orchestra, this, which, which sort of seemed to be. There's so many different. Ver- there's quite a few versions of it, you know, that mm. come keep coming out. Mm. Sort of. So he was obviously making revisions all the time to it. Mm. Mm. It was like his big epic work or something. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably Lucifer right. Rising because this huge box set came out with everything in it, and uh, or they thought everything in it, and then another box set appears with something else in it that you haven't heard. You know. Mm. As, mm as is the way of record production today. Yeah. So I don't know if it's an even... It might even be, for all I know, an ongoing project with him. You know, he might be right now sitting in his cell (laughs) writing another draft for him, for anger, you know. Yeah. Um, But but anger's anger's an interesting guy, very interesting person. I I think he's absolutely fascinating. We've got a couple of interviews um, on RBP with Kenneth Anger. Mick Brown did a long interview with him. And, um, yeah, I mean... Kind of creepy, but fascinating guy. Anger actually objected to my Crowley book. There was think things in it that he didn't like, and the American edition got changed because they didn't want to fight. Well, he objected to the idea that the Stones. I mean, there's a key track in the context of the discussion. It's obviously sympathy for the devil, isn't it? And I think you say, you know, that might have been written about Kenneth Anger, and he was not happy about that. Yeah, he wasn't happy about that. Yeah. And there's also there was letters flyers like a letters a guy wrote to me who had issued Jimmy Page's soundtrack as a bootleg and I I was told that Anger got some money from the guy but when Jimmy Page sued the bloke Anger was like I have nothing to do with that oh you horrible man you know so I don't know what the truth is but he certainly didn't want it in the book If we go like beyond Zeppelin, if you like, beyond the Stones and those famous names, into the sort of terrain, Edwin, of your occult primer, what are the kind of more obscure names that you would cite that are interesting? You know, is it is it like let's talk about Black Widow rather than Black Sabbath? Are, 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 who who would you nominate as kind of 
the more interesting occult rock artists? And what about Let- someone like D- Graham Bond and his Holy Magic? Um, yeah, I mean another another Crowley disciple, really. You know, yeah. um, Graham Bond, who unfortunately killed himself, didn't he, on the Finsbury Park on the Finsbury Park underground line? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Graham Bond came out of jazz. You know, yeah. he was playing with Ginger Baker and and Jack Bruce and yeah. Jack Bruce yeah. and everything. You know, the the, 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 the seeds of cream sort of thing in a way. Mm. And how he turned that way, I've got no idea really. I suppose it's in that book which I haven't read, unfortunately. But me neither. And there's some sort of theory that he was suffering from maybe schizophrenia, and it may have been sort of simply related to mental health stuff. You know, yeah. so what would have been uh, an interest in 1964 became poison to him yes. later in life. Yes, yes. Mm. I mean, there's also Bowie, of course, and you, you, I think you touch on the song Quicksand from yeah. Hunky Dory. I'm closer to the golden dawn Immersed in Crowley's uniform Of imagery There's also a piece we're going to add in the main feature, which is Ian MacDonald writing about Bowie's slightly dilettantish occultism, but I mean, I'd forgotten that, that Alistair Crowley actually gets a name check in the song yeah. um, Quicksand, as yeah, does yeah. Heinrich Himmler, which is even, even <laughs> nice. more disturbing. Nice, yeah. yeah, that whole that whole sort of idea of occultism and um, the gold, the golden door, and the golden ring. I don't know. It's all then, kind of weird. I mean, really. the swastika about, itself so is, is a symbol that Crowley, you know, it's an occult. Was, symbol. Was, it's a Sanskrit. It's, it's a, a Sanskrit, Sanskrit symbol, symbol yeah. right? Yeah. So it was yeah. something that he was he was using, and didn't he also? You write propaganda for for Germany in the First World War and stuff. Yeah, so he did. Yeah, yeah. He, his claim was that he did that in a kind of reductio ad absurdum thing yeah. to make them look really stupid. And there, <laughs> and there is, and in the Second World War, there's a lot of evidence that he secretly did work for the British government. Playing both sides. <laughs> it's all. I mean, there's a kind of interesting contrast. I mean, conflict almost between what you were saying earlier is is a lot of it is about freedom and and expressing various things, and then when you get towards the sort of Manson stuff, a lot of it becomes about using that to control others. So there's a there's a kind of conflict there for me. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, there's a seriousness here. On the other hand, the black bands, the Sabbaths. The Black Widows were more close to Dennis Winkley, I'd say. It was, it yeah. was, a, it was a sort of <laughs> British provincial paperback book sort of notion. Quite of very Midlands. Very Midlands. <laughs> the Black Country. Black, <laughs> there it is. That's it. The Black Country. Why do you think but it's called Black Widow? Black Widow were kind of linked to Alex Sanders, uh, the, the god of the witches. Yeah who was a, notoriously splashed all over the tabloids, you know, for doing these secret rites everywhere. Yeah. and With naked women. Naked so, women yeah. and everything. Yeah. Sort of kind of filtering into pornography in a way, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean, sort of thing. That was everywhere. And, it, and it, uh, that was very British. Yeah. And, Did, and when you hear that record, you know, come to the Sabbath, yeah. it just sounds so British, doesn't it? <laughs> it <you think>? does. <laughs> just sounds so, so sort of staid yeah. almost. and. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not like it's not exactly Norwegian black metal. No, it's, it? it's hammer, it's hammer horror sort of, you know. Exactly. Um, but they did practice a ritual did, on stage yeah. that yeah. was that with with I think it was supervised by Alex Sanders as well. Right. Yeah. 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 
Help me in my search for knowledge. I must learn the secret art. Who dares to help me raise the one whose very name seals my heart? I mean, if we bring the, the story up to present day via kind of black metal and the sort of atrocious things that happened you know, in the name of black metal, mm. where, I mean, where would you say, you know, music's relationship with what burning churches you now? Mean, yeah, 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 yeah. And, 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 and killing each other. Killing yeah. Yeah. Well, well you're talking about the uh, second Norwegian wave of black yeah, metal. Yeah, the second yeah. Norwegian wave, which is... Which post is, I mean, we, did, did you Did you guys, did you follow that while of course. it was happening? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I read about it, yeah. Well, it was all over Kerrang, wasn't it? You know, Kerrang, well, Kerrang did a big thing on it. Well, we, we've got this guy, Tori Oren, who's who just wrote four pieces for Kerrang, who's Norwegian, and he sort of did these kind of... These They're really, really in-depth. Quite interesting reports, report, on, reports on, yeah, on, yeah. on that stuff. But, I mean, as a sort of, you know, n- you know non kind of black metal aficionado there was that feeling certainly for someone like me that it's like hasn't has heavy metal gone a bit too far now <laughs> um i don't know what your what your thoughts were on on, on the occult aspects of well all that. Let, let's take mayhem for instance who yes. I, I i believe are still the best in the business in a way you know i mean for me for me they were like the, the beginning of that particular period of black metal that i got interested in yeah and um, the the first record, you know, was an EP sort of thing, and it was sort of called Death Crush, and it was more like a punk rock record in a way, you know, punk rock with shades of Venom on top of it, you know, what I mean that sort of thing. The so, band Venom. Venom, yeah, yes, yeah. So great band. So that was that, and then then all of a sudden, bang, they went into heavy duty uh, satanic worship with yeah. the next record. Mm. Yeah, we went. Yes, and your primer, you mentioned. This French power trio, um, Alec Tadola. Yes, I, I really don't album. know what's happened to them anymore. Right. But but at the time of writing, they were kind of like one of my favourite black metal related type group, mm. uh, acts, if you so. Yeah. But astonishingly, you went there and and it, it was just like music that was very trance inducing. You know, a bit like heavier Hawkwind or something like that. But also you sort of listen between the cracks and weird things like surf instrumental that appear, you know what I mean? And things like that. <laughs> but I'm like intrigued. heavily amplified, but really odd. Yeah. Yeah. And a cult rock, if you can get hold of a copy, it's a wonderful record. That was the name of the, of the was it a single? Was it a double album? Double album, double album yes. Album, yes. Cult rock. Maybe a blind alley, but did any musicians become associated with that weird Scientology offshoot, the process? Yes. Sabbath Assembly. Right. And they were... Um, David Noss from uh, the uh, No Neck Blues Band started mm-hmm. that. No Neck Blues Band are a sort of an improvised sort of... Improvisational group. Right. Who sort of mixed all sorts of music together. Mm-hmm. Free jazz, folk, rock, all sorts of things. They put a record out on... John Fay's Revenant label. Right, sounds right up my street. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Produced um, by Jerry Yester, would you believe? Oh, it? really? It's, oh. It's, it's, it's a really great record ah, as well. Right, okay. Um, yeah, so so out of the ashes of that came Sabbath Assembly, and they returned to the actual song texts and music, you know, written scores of what the Process Church used to sing at their meetings. 
and re-recorded them all. Yeah, extraordinary. I've got a, one copy of the magazine, which is... Which is called The, the, the Process. The Process. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's pretty riveting stuff. It? Yeah. But yeah. they interviewed... Interview, I think Jimmy Savile's interviewed. Yes. Uh, there's a oh, book. Yeah. Uh, there's a nice book which is, has all the magazines in colour. Not all book. of them. Three of the, three of the issues. Oh, yes. The so first two yeah. are missing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can we briefly, Sandy, talk about Throbbing Gristle yeah. and Genesis Peorage? Yeah. And how they sort of fit into this. Because you wrote about them pretty early. I mean, you mentioned it. You went to Alan Lewis. Can I write about this well, band, Throbbing I was, Gristle? I was at the, the Roxy, that little club that was that existed briefly. Genesis Peorage was there. And someone pointed him out to me. And and I remember that I had a cutting from Melody Maker from a couple of years ago. A little, a little strip and, you know... And they, I kept it because they sounded so unusual, you know. And I just went up to him and said, "Oh, you're Genesis Peorage, blah blah. You know, would you do an interview?" And he goes, "Oh, people always say that, but they <laughs> never come back to me, you know, because their editors won't allow it." And I, and I said, "Well, give you know, give me a phone number." And Alan Lewis went, "Yeah, okay." And I just phoned him the next day. I didn't listen to their music riotously all the time at home, you know, but I loved going to their gigs, which only lasted one hour. They had a machine that would cut the sound after an hour, and then you would get ABBA or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that their first Even album more was... horrible. I think it was called 20 Jazz Funk Great, wasn't it? So is that, have I got that correct? That's, that's one of their albums. That's one of It wasn't the first, the first album. Okay. That's the first one I was aware of. The first one was thinking, called, strangely, what? Second Annual Report. I don't know why it was okay. the second. I can't remember okay. why it was yeah. the second. But you wrote about them yeah. and Psychic TV, I think, over the years, didn't you? Yeah, my friend and Alex joined Psychic exactly, TV. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And remained interested and uh, um Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But... Um, I found it kind of shocking when two of his female partners both accused him of violence. Mm, yeah. You know, he denied it. But apparently with Cozy Fanny there was a witness. Right. And then I went to the launch of that book, England's Hidden Reverse, which is about him and David Tibet and all those bands. And I, just by coincidence, his wife, Paula, had just come into the country and heard about this. So I said, oh, hello, Paula. And she was saying, oh, people think Jen's great. You know, he chased me with a knife. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's two women are saying this. Right. It's, it's, I, had, I had a lunch um, with mutual friends with him and Paula and Brighton many, many, many years ago. And he was saying things which were absolutely revolting. Right. That I won't go into any great no, detail sure, here. Sure. But, but, but I, I, I basically walked out. I was, I was absolutely just really... I, Peter Christofferson was a bit... I mean, I know he's a great designer at Hypnosis, but he's a very, very strange guy. I remember Jen saying to me, people think I'm weird. You want to see what he gets up to? Yeah, so just to sort of bring your individual stories up to kind of the present day, I mean, do you, do you want to tell us kind of what you're what you're up to at the moment? Are you got a new? You just showed us this mm, little pamphlet. Just thing doing, before. just doing yeah. all sorts of things. I'm kind of still writing for the Wire magazine. Yes. Mm. I'm still drawing. I'm still 
trying to do a bit of painting. You know, what I mean, I'm still sort of it's in, still the, in the arts, for, really. That's, and that's for sure. You know, I'm still, I'm still, still carrying on, really. Yeah. I mean, and some so, years ago, you were painting with another painter. I was, yeah, Chris Long. Yeah. Yes, oh, my Battle friend. of the Eyes was, was that? Battle of the Eyes. Yeah, that's yeah. an extraordinary process to be making paintings with another person. Yes. It was kind of interesting, very right. interesting. Yeah. We both decided that we wanted to be abstract artists. Right. Abstract expressionists. So I had a studio at the time at the top of the road. Mm-hmm. So we'd go in there, uh, buy great big pieces of paper, lots of acrylic paint and mm-hmm. brushes, and uh, get to it, really. Yeah. You know, and it was very a learning curve for me because Chris Long knew everything about painting and you know wait, wait, you knew about painting mm-hmm. but i didn't i never used to paint i just used to use repeatographs and right. things like that i had very little use of you know knowledge of color or how it all worked together really and what i did know the basics mm-hmm. but what I, what i learned through chris long was pretty interesting right and, and i think we learned from each other and i think i i taught him to sort of loosen up a bit and be freer and right you know what i mean yeah yeah not be so tight sure just freak out you mm-hmm. know what i mean i told him a freak out and he did <laughs> <laughs> so, that in was the good. spirit of the mothers of invention <laughs> yeah so yeah it was yeah. a very interesting thing yeah. then the experiment ended and uh right. and uh that was time that to was call that. it a day yeah. really he's returned to being an abstract painter mm-hmm. and i returned to my little table at home and started drawing monsters again <laughs> <laughs> there's always monsters yeah lurking uh-huh. in the deep Sandy, what's keeping you out of trouble these days? I don't listen to a great deal of new music. I, I like that band Squid from Brighton. I don't know if you've heard them. I've heard the name. They're sort of like, if you can, the drummer sings, it's sort of like the fall, only they have jazz brass bits thrown out. It's very strange, but I, I really like them. And I like this strange addiction. They've got stuff on YouTube. It's basically a duo with a girl singer called Anna Pierce. Uh, really great songs. Somebody should snap up their publishing. Really, really good. Strange addiction. Strange addiction. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people seem to use that name on on, on YouTube, but you can find them. You know, great little videos as well. Okay. But I'm thinking of doing. I'm not do. I'm not a great. I don't have a great interest in Patti Smith these days, but a lot of people seem to like the old fanzine and pay ridiculous silly amounts for it. So Edwin and I were talking about we might put together a, a, a little book of the eight issues. A book of white stuff. Yeah. That would be great. Collect it together and, you know, let it, let it, let it free again. A white stuff scrapbook, like, like your Alistair Crowley scrapbook that um, is sitting right in front of me here, which meant to mention earlier, from 1988. So, yeah, that'd be, that, I'd love to see... A white stuff. Amazingly, but, one of the guys from Rough Trade still had the original paste-ups of the first four issues of white stuff in storage after, like, 40 years, untouched. And he wow. said, I, I said, can I have them back? And he, he went and found them. That's fantastic. So and, those, and I've got some other issues. The only missing issue, someone has sent me a PDF, so it could be done, you know, it could easily be done. Yeah. And I'm doing introductions various for various books when I get asked, you know. When did you first see Patsy play? I came down to London... For the 76, Roundhouse. Was it 75 or 76? 76. Yeah, I came down specially for that. I used to come to London just to see gigs. Came to London to see Poco. (laughs) 
Apparently, something I can understand. Poker, that's, yeah. that's going the distance. One of the, they played one of the worst shows I ever saw in my life. Poker, Rainbow, I think it was actually dreadful. Yeah, that is probably it. Yeah, yeah. I think the original Poker, the very first iteration of Poker that we probably played at like um, the Troubadour in like '69, I think was, would would have been great. Then it just after that, anyway, Poker doesn't really belong in this. But this is this is what I liked about Sandy. You see, when we were at Sounds, um, he would just introduce me to these this music that would be completely out of my you know <laughs> eye eye level, you know what I mean, or ear level, or whatever it is. And he'd say like, "Have you listened to this new Helen Reddy record?" And I go, <laughs> "No. Why the hell would I want to listen to that?" And he'd put it on, and I'd go. Right, okay. And that next thing I know, I'll be buying an import of it, you know what I mean? And listening to it. <laughs> I've still got a letter she sent me when I reviewed Ear Candy, and it says, Thank you for the review I have waited my whole life for. Ear Candy. Uh, Capital had a, a, a breakfast with all these guys in pinstripe suits saying, Will you sign this for my, for my wife? You know? And she said, And I had a lot here, didn't I hear? And she said, I want him to sit next to me. <laughs> and she just talked to me the whole lunch and ignored these guys. It was great. Yeah. We've got a, an audio interview with Helen, haven't we? On the show, which is we do. Which is great. I she, mean, she's she's actually, wonderful. In it. She comes with really hearing. nicely. Yeah, in it, yeah, you know. yeah, lovely woman. Apparently, yeah. she's a real dope smoking nice woman. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, sadly, she passed away. She had dementia. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lillian Roxham was very early promoter of her. This is Australian, Australian roots. Australian, yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Shall we? We you mentioned Hawkwind earlier. Um, and Hawkwind was one of the bands that the great Andrew Lauder signed and worked with at United Artists slash Liberty. He's just publishing his new book, Happy Trails. It's, just, it's the story of his career as an A&R guy, and it's fascinating, really. It's very, like, listy, but it's, it's a fascinating... You just realise how many extraordinary artists he worked with, including Hawkwind, of course. And so we dug out an audio interview that Mark is going to yeah, tell us about. Yeah, so, Andy Gill, we think it's 1990 because the Stone Roses are just... Manchester's just become hitting the big time. Um, but it's, it's really interesting. He talks about, as a 17-year-old, going down Denmark Street, knocking on doors, looking for a job in the music business. He decided this was what, what he wanted to do. And he goes into Southern Music, publishers, and says, you know have you got any work? And the guy says, well, if you sit down over there, you can start working for us straight away, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> unbelievable stuff. And so he works there for a while. Then Liberty opened their UK branch, and he kind of goes over there as as A&R. It's his first real A&R, A&R job. Liberty slash United Artists, the same, the same label. His first signing was the Groundhogs, Tony McPhee's, which I'm very fond of. Me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah. there's thumbs up all around the table. (laughs) Um, Very underrated. I I mean, it's very interesting because he's he's really into, you know, Hawkwind and Man, he signs. Um, At one point, Chrysalis come looking to employ him and he goes back to, and they offer him twice the salary. He goes back to to United or Liberty slash United Artists and says, look, 
they've offered me this gig. We'll listen to the, this clip. Yeah. And basically they come back and say, no, you stay with us and we'll double your salary. And yeah. Guys, well, shall we hear yeah, that? That's yeah. Christmas was pretty early on. I think they got 10 years after they looked after her. They weren't Decker. Just for a time, Bob and Pig, and that was about it. And so I said, I accepted the job and told, told the guys at UA. And he sort of totally freaked out and said, Right, okay, you're, you know, you're the head of AR, and well, give them lots more money. And what colour do you want the office? You know, so it's a ludicrous <laughs> office that was like a Wild West salon with bull's horns and swinging doors, and uh, totally ridiculous. <laughs> And a guy from San Francisco reading star signs at the end of the table. And it was smoke extractors, so this kind of marijuana yeah. madness in the game. And, and just did more of that. And, and uh, we had Brinsley's came along, 17, and Man. And then we had all the, you know, the Help Yourself and this kind of yeah. more and more of a kind of. It was a great UA scene. It was like this little. It was nothing to do with basically. Yeah. And it was good fun. And we were selling enough records that, that I mean, Hawkins was doing, the Groundhogs were doing well. But, that I sort of got away with it, basically. Terrific stuff. I mean, he signed Dr. Feelgood, he signed, who actually a very important band in a variety of ways. He also signed Eamon Dool II, the second Eamon Dool, and Can. So has a big responsibility for the promotion of Krautrock in this country. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the, Hawkwind and Mann and Eamon Dool and Can, you know, they're sort of jam bands. It's, it's a sort of, it's an element of what they do. He likes that sort of sprawling rock. I mean, and the other thing is that he didn't really have any huge hits, but he always did well enough to keep a, a gig in A&R. So you could call him a sort of second second division A and R man, but I really like that. But it's 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 really good. Punk rock comes along. He signs the Stranglers and the Buzzcocks, and then he moves over to the sort of the other Stallone, Nitlo, Radar, Riviera, yeah, um, yeah, F Beat, Demon, becoming a catalog label boss, which is it's about the CD, the introduction of the CD, and suddenly back catalog became of yeah. value all over again. And he says, you know, they were more or less the first to do it. But within a few years, all the majors were doing it better than they could, they, they could do it. And then starts Silverstone Records and signs of Stone Roses. Let's have a listen to the next clip. Basically, we just had this thing in Manchester and no one else you know, knew much what was going on. I think the big companies are mystics. They've probably seen them early on. When they weren't really good, you know, a lot of people said people had seen them a year before I did. So it used to be bloody awful, wacky. But then, you know, every they've had a time to, to get to be good. So many groups that get crossed off the old A and R list far too early. You know, it's, well, they've done five gigs. You know, leave them alone for six months. You know. yeah. But they've kind of crossed them off the list so that in case they're asked about what about this Charlton's group, it's, oh yeah, I saw them six months ago. It's crap. You know, whatever. At least if you've, you know you've got an answer for something. Um, but it's, it's, it's different. Now everything comes out of Manchester. Obviously, everyone's up there running around like a fast fly trying to you know, worry if they've got the right one. You know. 
turn, interesting That'll turn nasty, didn't it? The, the Stone Roses relationship. They, they came and like, trashed his office because they were angry about what was a pretty iniquitous contract that had actually been drafted before he arrived there by Zomba. Right. So, so Silvertone was, was a label that Zomba started. Yeah. Jive. Jive. Yeah, the Zomba group, Clive Banks. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about uh, Amandul and you yes. were sounding very enthusiastic about uh, Amandul in particular um, Amandul 2 Amandul yeah. 2 well yeah. I like Amandul 1 as well and they yeah. were even more of a jam band than anything else really mm-hmm. you know? I mean mm-hmm. about like communal jam band weren't they mm-hmm. sort of very odd yeah, I mean, I'm one of the many people who bought the live in London album because you know we always seem to talk about these these budget records that were released in that era. Like and I was nine, all 99p, yeah. and I've got a Brinsley Schwartz 99p album that Andrew <laughs> yeah. also put out. Those were great. Um, yeah, they were. And the great. samplers, I loved all those samplers. Yeah, they were kind of an introduction to yeah. music, weren't oh, like, they? They kind of like were your they were your like primer to, to use a quote from the wire. But, you know, they, they they were the primer for what music you were going to listen. Yeah. to. Islands were really good. They put yeah, out lots yes. and lots of samples. And then it's like, you know, fill your head with rock and all those sorts of things. Exactly. And, you know, when you're 13 or 14 or 15 and you've got a tiny amount of pocket money, you can't afford to start buying a lot of records. You just don't. And so the sampler was absolutely... The, you're absolutely right. I mean, mm. it's the equivalent now to, like, having a Spotify account or yeah. something. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. But those records were, like I said, a private... But every, every, every record label had one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Every Every... Like, even Vertigo had one as yeah, well, you yeah, know, yeah, that yeah. was coming out of Philips, wasn't it, or something like that, you know, I mean, all these all these arcane yeah. record labels, but they all had a progressive label and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So they were all sort of putting out samplers, just kind of invite you into their... But most of the times, the samplers were better than the actual horrible <laughs> LPs <laughs> that the ghastly prog rock bands were putting out, you know. Yeah, yeah. I got one from the States, from A&M. I found out, and I thought they wouldn't send it, but I filled in the form... And it had the the original version of It Ain't Easy that David Bowie later covered on it. And it was just all their weird band. <laughs> they all I t- couldn't believe they sent it to Scotland for it, I think. Yeah. Fantastic. They all had titles like The Rock Machine Turns, turns You on. on. Yes, yeah. that, Great that, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you mentioned Vertigo. And I think one of the things that's interesting about Lauder is that United Artists did not, or Liberty, they didn't create a new like label for kind of you know, freaky underground music. Andrew just signed all these mm. sort of freaky underground acts like Hawkwind mm. and the Groundhogs. Le- uh, Liberty just suddenly became this weird label. Exactly. Was, whereas whereas in America it was associated with like sort of Bobby V. And, and Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band were on the Strictly Personal was on that and everything. Yes. And, their, and their sampler was Gut Bucket, which was really <laughs> good. <laughs> Gut Bucket and Son of Gut Bucket with these fantastic big pictures on the front of the covers. Yeah. Right. right. Um, and then sort of like the, the silver tone. It's, you've got the Stone Roses, but he also signed J.J. Cale, Loudon Wainwright III, John Lee Hooker. Yes. You know, it's very odd. And you were telling us, Edwin, that you, you actually yes, worked for Silver Yes, and, and Andrew asked me to write for Silver Tone magazine. Well, I, I think I did one one piece, I think, um, and that was that was an interview with uh, Loudon Wainwright III, yeah. Yeah. So that went in. Yeah. I mean, I did, it's... I've almost finished this book, Happy Trials. I think it's High Times and Charmed, A Charmed Life or something. You, know? you read the book and, and it does feel like he had a sort of charmed life. Mm. You know, he came down from Hartlepool in the way that you described yeah, and yeah. He had a job within 24 hours. Yeah. You know, everything just seemed to kind of fall into his, his lap. His parents wanted to like, go to university. And he said, no, I just want to go 
work in the pop industry. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I, but I think if this you... This is exactly it, like me, that your parents are saying, this is impossible. Yes. You don't know anybody. I know. You don't... How can you do this? Yeah, yes. yeah, We're yeah. back in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> like, my parents couldn't believe that I was... Do- I'm doing what I was doing, you know. They just couldn't believe I was earning a living drawing I, silly I cartoons and writing about music and... Ima- they just couldn't... It was beyond their comprehension. Yeah, yeah. Yes. They thought, what on earth... There must be something wrong here. There must be something <laughs> going on. My but, mother was born in Toronto, and she, I think the first time she really believed it was a good job was when I rang her from Toronto and said, <laughs> don't worry about the phone call, I'm not paying for it. <laughs> she was like, oh, my God. Who were you interviewing in Toronto, can you remember? Some terrible metal band, I can't remember their name. <laughs> Got paying your dues, right? Yeah. yeah. We wanted to. But maybe God. maybe it's like the occult, the stars were in the right ascendant or whatever it is, and it was meant to happen, you know what I mean? That we got, we, we, we were lucky, we, we, we were just sort of there at the right time, and I think, you know, Andrew Lauder was there at the right time, he just stepped into the office when yeah. he had a job going, and all that's all you needed, you yes. just needed just a, lot, yeah. a chink to get through, and yeah. then, then, you, then you spread out what talent you had in front of them, and, uh, you know, they cherry-picked it. Yeah. In a way, the saddest thing was the professionalisation of the music business in the 70s. Yeah. As yeah. it became increasingly professional, and suddenly that ability just to walk into Southern Music and Denmark Street and ask for a job—you'd be thrown got, out before you got anywhere near that, reception. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. That, they no, gave that me twenty-five quid a week just to sort of tell them about things. Mm. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's, that's a lot of money then. I know, yes. a huge yeah. amount of money. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And in a way, Lauder just has, has managed to kind of sustain his career like that. You know, he never he never signed an Eagles or a Dire Straits because he yeah. wouldn't have been interested in. Yeah, working there was some with discussion music. about who actually signed you too. I've read elsewhere that he was. Then you. Well, he, in his book, he doesn't say right, he signed yeah. them. Nor, frankly, did he sign the Stone Roses. Um, I can rather hope he, he didn't sign yeah. you too because yeah. that's you know, a bottom discussion. But it was interesting <laughs> that second clip where he sort of, I think it's very. Uh, a very pertinent point that you know A and R men would go up to Manchester and dismiss a band and yeah. and never and never go to see them again yeah. and that and He's people also, had dismissed the Stone Roses who became almost like the biggest band in the land. A and Ring had become a competitive industry where you had to get the band first, and yes. so people would go and see bands after they played five gigs or something like that. And they just weren't ready, and so bands would get them. And his thing was that Stone Roses had actually been around for like two, three years uh-huh. before they got signed, yeah, um, uh-huh. and so. Got good. I mean, as I said, this is 1919. He's talking about the changes happening then in the music industry, and you can tell he's not terribly comfortable with them. And his own career as an active A and R guy, he's only got about three more years left to run at that point. You yeah, know, yeah. He's finally, he's, he's really talking about the men they couldn't hang. Right. Who he was convinced were going to be the next big act on the Silver. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Mention should also be made about his love of the West Coast music, I think, yeah. you know, and how involved he was with that. And that involved, you know, that, that produced stuff like Brinsley Schwartz yes. and Nick Lowe. And well, like man, and well, like... Help yourself and things yeah, like that. Yeah, but like a know. Welsh Quicksilver messenger, sir. Exactly, that's, yeah. That's in how fact, he saw... Uh, all dead, I remember people in calling... In fact, Kapalina, didn't, didn't Kapalina play guitar on the... Exactly, exactly. the Man album. Yeah, and he's out of tune. Uh, sadly, he was completely out of tune. So, that, in fact, well, I think they've actually mixed him out of the record. But he was he was obsessed with San Francisco. Yes. And any excuse to go to San Francisco. And in the first clip, he talks about his office, which he basically wanted to recreate 
the original charlatans, you know, the saloon in 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 Virginia where they played, and that was his idea with with the the bullhorns and everything, and and the he, guy doing reading the, the tarot, <laughs> yeah, and all the marijuana smoke. I mean, it's he just wouldn't be able to operate like that in the music mm. industry anymore, would he? But anyway, fascinating. <laughs> On that note, I think we, we just want to pay tribute to a couple of people that we've lost in the last two weeks. The first being Josh Shaka, yep. if I can pronounce that correctly. Josh Shaka, the great sound system guy based here in, in London, uh, probably the most famous reggae sound system operator. Um, Edward, this is very much your territory. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I guess, but... That said, I hardly have any records by Josh Shaka. I, right. I, don't, I don't really... The, Josh Shaka's discography is a mystery to me. Absolutely. I wish I could. I wish I could sort of plumb its depths, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I just don't know where to go to well, find out about I it. I kind of done the same thing. Actually, when he died, I thought I'd try mm. to confine stuff. And um, I think he's slightly... The, the, the story of him being a record maker has been slightly overblown. Mm. But actually, his principal thing was some guy who ran sound systems. Yes. And I, I mean, I remember seeing him at, like, the carnival a lot and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, a single turntable, none of this twin turntable sort of stuff. You know, one record player, put the record on, play it to the end. <laughs> I feel that... During one of the blues dances yeah. I attended, probably with Vivian Goldman right. during, during my early days, I must have bumped into a Josh Shaka session. You know, what I yeah, mean? yeah, because yeah. The music he made was just heavy as hell, yeah, but also very deeply spiritual, yeah, and very, very moving in a way. You know, you you, you felt like God. You, you you were actually listening to some kind of unearthly sort of church being, yeah. like being in the church yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. i mean yeah. the sound system is a massively important phenomenon and he contributed um, a lot absolutely. a lot to it well no, no sound system no hip-hop no actually that you know the, the, the um the, cool the, the, the original was, was trying to recreate the sound system but no one would listen to reggae so he started playing funk instead and yeah yeah, yeah 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 so we have this this epic NME piece from 1981 by Vivian with Penny Real and Paul Bradshaw, which is which is all about the sound systems and and in particular detail about Josh Shaka. So that's well worth a read. We also just in the last week lost the jazz pianist Armour Jamal, who I can't say I'm that au fait with with his back catalogue. I mean, I have a sort of uh, a particular idea of what he was about but i think maybe jasper could fill us in a little bit more about him sure i mean I, i'm not over familiar with with his of uh, as it were but i found this this live review of him playing at the barbican in 2005 which does give a quite a good overview is john l walters like cream ahmad jamal's trio is an influential outfit hugely successful in its time whose place in history can be underestimated his early music had a wide public as a kind of 1950s chill out music yet he also exerted a considerable influence on miles davis check out jamal's sublime composition new rumba on miles ahead and it's a really nice live review after that you know it sounds like it was actually a really great gig with idris Mohammed on drums and james kamak on bass creating a dynamic, sometimes hypnotic pulse that allows the leader to be as bombastic or as spacious as he wishes. And actually, in his, in his later stuff, some of the voicings that he uses are, are very, very interesting, quite widely spaced and quite kind of ethereal. And 
at the same time quite funky still. I mean, I, I do think that just sort of pigeonholing him as a, as a kind of cocktail pianist is, is probably wrong. As I did earlier in the office. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't have the sort of extensive knowledge of his, yeah. of his recording career to be able to pass any kind of real judgment. But there's some, some tracks that, it, that, that I've heard of his where I really, I really like his playing, actually. You know, a kind of mixture of, of bassy and maybe Art Tatum, and, you know, people like that. It's, it's, it's interesting. Great, thank you very much, Jasper. We've we've lost. I don't think anyone we can talk about in any great Almost depth. certainly tonight, the, 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 yes. the moment this podcast finishes, someone really important will it die. It does seem to happen <laughs> some weird occult work. Thursdays. It's April just... Stevens of Nino Tempo and April Stevens That's fame died yesterday. And I was saying, deep... I hope we make it till Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Deep Deep Purple obviously was a, was a huge hit for Atlantic Records in the early sixties, and and actually sort of quite quite a sort of sexy record she, she had this quite sexy voice uh, like, I was very things. disappointed I couldn't find a Keith Oldham interview with her that no. would have been sort of marvellous yes indeed, no. indeed Mark will you tell us about a few pieces yeah, that you've added ju- just a few things last week very early Eagles interview Judith Sims in Rolling Stone 1972 and Bernie Leiden you can see exactly why Bernie Leiden didn't last to the end of that band he says we're all reading books about the Hopis, Hopi, Hopi, Hopi Indians. And, uh, uh, in the Hopi mythology, the eagle is the most sacred animal with the most spiritual meaning. The eagle flies closer to the sun and will carry our message to the father. It symbolises all higher spirituality and morals. He jests with an emphatic beer bottle. High morals, the best that a man can be. I think it's a beautiful symbol. I'd hope the music would soar like that high. He paused a moment. Glenn likes the name Eagles for different reasons, he said, as if he really disliked mentioning it, but thought he should be fair. Glenn likes the name because it sounds like a teenage gang. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that was why Glenn Fry wanted the band to be called Eagles, yeah. because there had, in you know, his native Michigan, had yeah. been a gang called yeah. Eagles. Unless it was hopping, hopping And then they went bullshit. out to the desert and like saw <laughs> eagles circling overhead, and it all became was, this kind I of... I always thought they were called the Eagles. I mean, in, in a weird way, you know... It, in my in my naivety, when I first heard the name, I thought they'd chosen that because it was bigger than the birds. <laughs> <laughs> there may have been that. They always said so we're called G1. eagles. <laughs> we're not called the eagles. We're just called eagles. Which yeah. is, oh, and, really? and actually, yeah. if you see the album covers, it, it, they all yeah. generally say. Warren Zevon said, "I hate this when British rock critics like me, but they insult my friends." <laughs> <laughs> They're really nice guys. Nice seventy eight. Wayne Robbins interviewed Sean Cassidy, and Sean Cassidy is the half brother of David Cassidy, and he comes over as an entirely different beast. Where David Cassidy uh, died not that long ago, was, sort of came unravelled a bit. And Sean is a really sensible, straightforward guy. He's in it. He's a he's a teen heartthrob. He's in TV, but he says this business is very very shallow. It's fun, but it's not very intellectually stimulating. Your world isn't enlightening. You forget how to spell, and even saying a word as big as something becomes a challenge. You know. But he's very clear-eyed about what he's doing, and he went on to have actually a very happy life and so on and so forth, oh, you know. Um, unlike David. Unlike yeah. David, yeah. yeah. This week, Nancy Sinatra on Lee Hazelwood to Alan Smith and the enemy in 1967. 
Lee's been responsible for my entire success on record. I can never forget that, and I never want to. Lee's difficult to get to know. His manner tends to bring out strange things in people. After a few minutes, most of those who meet him either love him or hate him intensely. <laughs> Did either of you ever encounter Lee Hazelwood? No, I yeah. remember buying an international submarine band for 50 pence in the... Oh. Uh, on Lee Hazelwood International Records in the Barras in Glasgow, that notorious jump. Well, many say that is the first country rock album, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I think uh, Hazelwood really did not care for Graham Parsons. It was felt very threatened by this young buck. Yeah. But no, I did interview him once and I absolutely loved him. May have had something to do with the fact he was drinking Shivers Regal at midday my kind of my kind of, <laughs> kind of guy <laughs> i found him very very amusing but i i know that he, he could be quite a curmudgeon those sinatra and hazelwood records are glorious some velvet morning and pretty pretty quite sort of a quite a cultish actually some velvet morning my uh, doctor said to me once have you ever heard of lee hazelwood and i was like what <laughs> you don't expect your doctor to ask you know <laughs> <laughs> so what, you had a discussion about Well, she knew I haven't been in music business, oh, wow. you know. But okay. I, I just, and she said... She was a fan. And I said, you've heard of Lee Hazelwood? And she said, what, you think I think I don't know what's what, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm hip. Yeah, I'm hip. Very funny. Some velvet morning when I'm straight. Flowers growing on a hill. I'm Lastly, this is um, Tanya Donnelly, interviewed by Evan McDonald, musician, 1993. And what she's saying kind of resonates today with some of the sort of way people can be criticised. She says, I'm a right girl target right now because I wear makeup, because I smile. I'm really tired of justifying myself. First of all, I've been doing this for 10 years and fuck them on that level right away. And second of all, it's really unfair that it's been turned around to where there's a new set of rules. And this, I think we can say, is... There are echoes of this in the current era. In the current era, Jasper, what have you got? <laughs> Just one thing I'll mention, actually. Why Heavy D Matters by Michael A. Gonzalez in Complex on 10th of November 2011, which was just after Heavy D died. Though many remember him as the overweight lover, Heavy D was much more than one of hip-hop's first pop stars. He made some of the most important moves behind the scenes. And even after his untimely death, Hev's lasting influence on the game remains undeniable. It's a really interesting exploration of, of the influence of a kind of, you know, late 80s rapper who was paved the way for guys like Big E because he was quite a... He was, I mean, Heavy D, you can gather from the name, <laughs> was a big guy. Uh, <laughs> Women and girls were swooning over the big guy, something that hadn't happened since the days of Barry White. Heavy is one of the coolest guys in the music business, singer Faith Evans wrote in her memoir, Keep the Faith. He was gregarious and jovial and never failed to make me smile. But then also he was quite influential. Behind the corporate scenes at Uptown, Heavy was instrumental in getting crooner Albie Shaw signed to the label and landing a young Harlem kid named Sean Puff Daddy Coombs, an internship at the label. So he's kind of part responsible for doing that, you know, for for Mary J. Blige, Soul For Real, Jodeci, you know... so it's an interesting, interesting piece we to were, read about we, someone. We, we've been listening to him in the office, and it's, it's marvelously old school. It's very I mean, old school it, it, in a very you know, fun like kind way. Of, you know, Lindrum and yeah, him yeah, talking yeah. over the top and not much else. But so. it's fun. It's good fun. Yeah. <laughs> 
Wonderful. Any parting words from our guests? Well, rap was kind of interesting, wasn't it? In the in the eighties, I just sort of think um, I, I I've just put this little book out through Gosh Comics called Rockers and Rappers, which sort of are the illustrations I did for the albums at that time, and I was kind of interested to know to see it looking at, looking at back issues that it was either sort of uh, indie rock or metal or like Guns N' Roses and things like that, or heavy rock. And then, equally, loads and loads of rap artists like Ice-T, Ice, Ice, Ice Cube, you know, all those guys. Yeah. The gangster stuff. The gangster stuff. guys, yeah. That was really coming to the fore. And it felt like at the time, you know, that rap was the new rock and roll kind of thing. It was taking over. How many rappers are in Quite a lot, about, about a good half and half, yeah. yeah, half, yeah, half, half, yeah. Of, uh, yeah. A bit of the illustrations. Dude. MF Doom's whole persona was based on being a comic book villain in, yeah. in many respects. Sure, and, yeah. and he's fantastic. Well, he's, he's fantastic he's, visually and audio. He's, he'd he's, taken over the Doctor Doom persona yeah. in a way, you know, yeah. out of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. The Fantastic Four's uh, greatest villain. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, I mean, I love MF Doom. I think he's absolutely. He is brilliant, yeah. Titanic absolutely figure brilliant. In, in that. And, and his, his whole aesthetic, his whole kind of vibe. Being this villain, and there's you know there, there'll be voiceovers that are kind of as if from a from a cartoon television mm. show about you know MF Doom is back, you know what's what's going to happen. It's it's really fun and it's really playful and creative and interesting. Mm. Mm. I use music obviously as a as a tool to sort of draw with, you know what I mean. To this day, really, yes. And at that time, I was listening to a lot of rap, and it was it was affecting how the stuff came out, especially yeah. the gangster stuff, it, yeah. like some of the most. Insanely violent images in my uh, anthology, <laughs> Ra- Raid Sav X, uh, came through listening to rap and uh, pushing it out through ink. I mean, Savage Pencil is kind of, you know, could be a graffiti name. Could be, yeah, they're, yeah. Not, they're not pastel watercolours, are Don't they? steal it, kids. <laughs> <laughs> we must put that on the homepage. We, we, we certainly will. Yeah. Sandy, is there anything we didn't say about rock and the occult that you feel well, should have I'm said? I'm giving you a spooky, a spooky story to end on. Is uh, Warren Z. Vaughan, I was told he was difficult and nasty, and I found him really nice when I met him. And I don't usually ask for autographs, but I did. He had music paper where you write stave paper. Mm-hmm. And I said, would you sign it? And he actually wrote some notes and it said, it was in the Montcam Hotel, and it said Montcam Quartet for Sandy Robertson. So I got it framed. I, never, I don't know what the music would have sounded like. He'd get someone to play it. Wow. And I had it framed. And when I read he died, it was sitting on a bookshelf about that height with a soft carpet below. And after I read he died, I glanced over and it wasn't there. And it was on the carpet. And I picked it up and there was a crack right across the glass and the music was blank. There was nothing there. You can see some dusty marks like them there. And I've tried everywhere asking people, do you know how to restore lost... You know, if it was a murder confession, you could restore it. If anybody knows how to restore missing... Stuff, you know, that'd be great. But it's really, I, I can think of no reason why it would suddenly disappear. Gives you but shivers, it doesn't it? 
Yeah, that's really, really Ooh. peculiar. Well, for what it's worth, I voted for him to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, having been invited via Amy Linden, I think. Yeah, somehow. We both got invited. We, 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 we are now eligible to vote. For something we despise. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I selected my five artists, and, and Warren was one of them. I'm a huge Seagull fan. I know you interviewed yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. So if he is inducted, we'll do something on... Warren Zevon. Anyway, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Really, Thanks, really guys. Esteemed and great fun talking with you. To all listeners, please do visit Rock's back pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP and if not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. We will be back in two weeks with Sylvia Patterson. Till then, bye! bye. Come, come to the Sabbath, come to the Sabbath, Satan's there. Come, come, come to the Sabbath, come to the Sabbath, Satan's there. Come, come. That concludes episode 666. Uh, episode 150 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guests Edwin Pouncey and Sandy Robertson. Find their books, including Edwin's Savage Pencil Scratchbook and Sandy's Alistair Crowley Scrapbook, in all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Come, come, come to the Sabbath, come to the Sabbath, Satan's there. Come, come, come to the Sabbath, come to the Sabbath, Satan's there. Come, come, come to the Sabbath, come to the Sabbath, Satan's there. Come, come, come to the Sabbath, come to the Sabbath, Satan's there.